Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Transcendent and Imminent, Honoring God's Mystery, Embracing His Goodness. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 27, 2009. It's scary to consider just how idolatrous our ideas about God can be. We chop God down to our size, create him in our own image, and imagine that he loves all that we love and hates all the people we hate. Like the psalmist this week, we boast that, quote, God is on our side, end quote, and will destroy our enemies, Psalm 124, verse 1. Instead of worshiping the Holy Other, who transcends all creation and cosmos, we tuck God into our back pockets, where he remains safe, nice, and silent. In a recent article in The New Yorker, James Wood observes how in order to avoid such primitive images of God, some of the most vociferous anti-atheists make the opposite mistake. They avoid blatant idolatry, to be sure, but their alternate images of God are barely even religious. Consider the two examples that Wood gives. In his book, Reason, Faith, and Revolution, Terry Eagleton recoils from the idolatrous appropriations of God, whether they come from a television evangelist or an extremist mullah. He's written what might be the best and certainly most colorful repudiation of atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. So far, so good. But for Eagleton, writes Wood, God is not the meddling reality of the Hebrew Bible, and he's certainly not the father of the incarnate son. Instead, he's more like a, quote, aristocratic vapor, a rarefied God whom no one other than people like him actually believes in, end quote. Similarly, in his book Saving God, Philosopher Mark Johnston of Princeton rejects idolatrous notions of God as our personal patron. But his definition of the ideally non-idolatrous God sounds like an arcane academic formula. And I quote, The highest one equals the outpouring of existence itself by way of its exemplification in ordinary existence for the sake of the self-disclosure of existence itself. Eagleton and Johnston avoid idolatry, says Wood, but their rarefied alternatives are barely even religious. They're also far removed from the scriptures and the everyday longings of ordinary believers. The readings this week help us to avoid both of these extremes. In traditional theological language, they affirm the transcendence of God as wholly other and truly mysterious, and at the same time his imminence as a loving Father who is near to each one of us. In the story of Esther, God is not even named or known, and yet he clearly acts in human history. The Jewish woman Esther married the pagan king Xerxes of Persia, and through a bizarre set of circumstances, she thwarted Haman's genocidal plot to annihilate the Jews. 
And yet Yahweh is never mentioned. He's never seen and never heard from in the entire book. Whereas by one count, the pagan king is mentioned 190 times. Furthermore, the plot of this story hinges on intrigue, hatred, deceit, and eventual revenge by the Jews who massacred 75,000 of their enemies. Nor is there any mention of the Mosaic law, ritual purity, or the Hebrew sense of justice, mercy, and kindness. For all these reasons, the book of Esther has had both Jewish and Christian detractors who objected to its inclusion in the Bible. But every year since then, Jews have observed the Feast of Purim as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Esther 9.22 So God was powerfully and providentially at work, even though no one ever spoke his name. Similarly, in Mark's Gospel, just after arguing about who among them was the greatest, Mark 9, 33-37, and just before James and John asked Jesus for positions of glory, chapter 10, 35-45, the disciples saw an anonymous healer cast out demons in Jesus' name. This person was not known to them and must have been peripheral to the Jesus movement. He was not one of us, they complained, so we told him to stop. As if this healer needed their authorization as the sole proprietors of the mission of Jesus. Their presumption and exclusionary attitude was sadly ironic, because whereas the disciples had just failed in exercising demons, chapter 9, 14 to 18, this anonymous healer was successful. No, said Jesus, don't stop them, for whoever is not against us is for us. Even a simple kindness like a sip of water, no matter its origin, advances God's kingdom. Literary affinities have led some scholars to connect this Markan passage with the story of Eldad and Medad. When Moses appointed 70 elders, Eldad and Medad stood on the fringes of the community and didn't participate. But Numbers 11 reads, Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied. When Joshua objected, Tell them to stop, Moses rebuked him. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit on them. Numbers 11, 24 to 29. And so both Mark and Moses remind us that God works how, when, and where he pleases, through whom he pleases, and not just in the limiting ways that we might imagine or want. But God is by no means merely mysterious. Yes, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He makes himself known through entirely predictable ways and means. Psalm 19 for this week rejoices that God speaks to us through the works of creation and the words of his scriptures. 
And James writes that God not only speaks, He acts on our behalf. He hears our prayers. He forgives our sins and heals our bodies. We should never imagine that God is our personal valet. But the God of James and the psalmist is nevertheless a far cry from Eagleston's aristocratic vapor or Johnston's outpouring of existence. Back in the 8th century, Christians wrestled with an important question in the iconoclastic controversy. Should believers make visible images of the invisible God, like icons, and then venerate them in worship? The so-called iconoclasts, or image smashers, argued that finite material images of the infinite and immaterial God violated the Old Testament prohibition against graven images. In this view, images were idolatrous. But the iconoduals, or image lovers, pointed to the incarnation of Jesus, in which God became a man and revealed himself in flesh and blood. In former times, wrote John of Damascus, God, who was without form or body, could never be depicted. But now, when God is seen in the flesh, flesh conversing with men, I may make an image of the God whom I see. Both sides were defending an important point. The iconoclasts were right that the infinite God remains beyond all human description and knowledge, and that idolatry is always a temptation. But the supporters of icons were also right that the invisible God became visible, that the immaterial took on matter, that the infinite is also intimate. God is transcendent, and we should honor that mystery. But God is also imminent, and we should embrace his goodness. For books this week, I review a book called Crisis, 40 Stories Revealing the Personal social, and religious pain and trauma of growing up gay in America. It's edited by Mitchell Gold, along with Mindy Drucker. Austin, Texas, Greenleaf Book Group, 2008, 369 pages. If you grow up gay, this book shows, you basically have two choices. First, you can manufacture a false and increasingly neurotic self that must lie at all costs to all people all the time merely to survive. You must compartmentalize your public and private lives, deny what you know to be true about yourself, and vigilantly censor yourself in everything you do, say, and feel. Living this way leads to mental, physical, and emotional exhaustion, self-hatred, 
suicidal ideation, cutting, and chronic frustration. This first scenario begs the question, how long can you deny who you really are? As one contributor put it, the closet is a terrible place to live. But there's a second option. You can let down your guard and live spontaneously as your true and authentic self. But in this scenario, you face catastrophic losses in your church, synagogue, family, job, school, and community. For some gays, living authentically comes at an unacceptably high price. Among religious believers and before God, could you, for example, live with being called an abomination who ought to be stoned to death and who will suffer forever in hell? Would you be willing to risk full and final rejection by your family? How well do you think you could endure daily taunts and physical abuse at school? Do you think you'd risk your career for the sake of authenticity? Nor is honoring your true self psychologically easy. As one author put it, the only way I survived as a gay man was by embracing everything I was taught to hate about myself. I was deeply moved by these short four to five pages each simple and intensely personal stories. They're organized around four themes, religion, family and community, work, and school. The authors come from a wide variety of backgrounds, from white evangelicals to black Baptists, devout Mormons, Orthodox Jews, and conservative Catholics. There are young teenagers, famous politicians, and two professional athletes. About three-quarters of the stories are written by men, and there's no story written by a transgendered person. The last two stories are written by mothers who describe how they lost their gay teenagers to suicide and a brutal murder. With remarkable regularity and similarity, Every story witnesses to the power and tenacity of our social conditioning, which punishes gay people. They refute the discredited but prevalent ideas that people choose or can change their sexual orientation. In fact, almost every gay person in this book did try everything in their power to change. Denial, aversion therapies, reparative therapy, behavior modification, overcompensation, electric shock treatments, prayers, counseling, and even exorcism. But if you flip the question, you understand the futility of trying to alter what cannot change. Did we choose to be heterosexual, or could you change yourself to a gay orientation? This tragic mental health crisis, writes Gold, is entirely preventable and solvable. His book does a tremendous service in taking readers down the long road to wholeness and healing. Mitchell Gold, editor, the title of the book, Crisis, 
40 stories revealing the personal, social, and religious pain and trauma of growing up gay in America. <clears throat> For film this week, I review a, a comedy called Cold Souls, 2009. Paul Giamatti stars as Paul Giamatti in this clever comedy about an actor who can't master his part. Because at age 47, he's afflicted with a severe case of what Woody Allen once called heaviosity. He sees an article in the New Yorker about soul extraction and decides to unburden himself of his somber self. It works in a way and he subsequently feels light, hollow, and slightly bored. But going soulless has serious side effects, and before too long, he wants his soul back. But that's easier said than done. So in the interim, he rents a soul of another person. But that only makes him long for his own singular self even more. Things get really wacky when Giamatti discovers that his soul has been lost on the sinister and underground Russian market of soul transplantation. But what can a person give in exchange for his soul? And what does one do if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? You don't need to draw deep philosophic conclusions about ensouled bodies to enjoy this film but serious questions about human identity lurk just below the surface of these hilarious hijinks. The title of the film, Cold Souls, starring Paul Giamatti. And finally this week, we've posted a poem by St. Bonaventure. St. Bonaventure lived from 1221 to 12. 74. Born in Italy, he was one of the greatest Christian mystics. As a child, he was taken to St. Francis of Assisi for prayers to cure him of a dangerous illness. He studied and then lectured at the University of Paris for seven years and was later appointed a cardinal in the Catholic Church. This is taken from his work, The Journey of the Mind to God. St. Bonaventure Do not assume that mere reading will suffice without fervor, speculation without devotion, investigation without admiration, observation without exaltation, industry without piety knowledge without love, understanding without humility, and study without divine grace. The Journey of the Mind to God by St. Bonaventure Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 27, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.